Well, good morning. Like Jason said, I'm one of the pastors here, and I know it's a little chilly out here, you guys, so thank you for joining us. Um, I actually enjoy this weather, so, um, and I'm not sure if our 17th century brothers and sisters would have a lot of compassion for us, but I do understand why you got blankets around you. For you who are at home, I'm glad you're able to join us as well. I hope you're, you're enjoying the time here, enjoyed worship. Well, please open your Bibles to John, second chapter, where we'll be picking up where Kenny left off two weeks ago, John chapter 2. And before I jump into the message, I want to thank everybody who's really made these last four months possible for us to be able to worship here and you at home. Um, Lots of work went into setting this up and tearing it down every week, all the work on the e-liturgies and children's ministry and the technology. Um, Thank you for all the labors. Know the gratitude of the church and the pastors, but most of all, the Lord. It's his kindness through you guys, that we've been able to worship here these last four months. Also, um, it's, a, it's a measure of your kindness, God's kindness to us, that you have continued to give to the church because this tent has not been inexpensive to rent. It's God's kindness, but it's not been cheap, and you guys have made it possible. All the equipment that we've had to purchase to make the online experience uh, uh, beneficial, that's because of your generosity. So know our gratitude on both those fronts. Well, a couple weeks ago, Andrea and I celebrated our, our fifth or sixth anniversary. And um, we, uh, what we do on our anniversary is always a little bit different. Sometimes we're at home with a quiet dinner. I enjoy those. Uh, sometimes we get out of Dodge, and that's what we did uh, just a couple weeks ago. And it amazes me, though, that my awareness of Andrea's love for me has only grown over the years. Every time I think I understand it, God gives me new eyes to see it in greater clarity. And as I replay the last 45 years, I marvel at God's grace to her and the many expressions of love that she shows me. And every time I reflect on those 45 years, I see new expressions in the present. I know every year, that our marriage is rooted in many ways in Andrea's love, not of herself, but of for God and for me. And this morning, as we move back into John, I think we're going to see that Jesus is using it as an opportunity to show his disciples a grander vista of who he is in his love for them. Now, we have to remember Jesus is, can you believe it, only in the second week of his ministry literally just a few days into his ministry, that's as long as his disciples have known. It's still going to be three more years before Jesus actually finishes the mission that he was born to accomplish. And what his disciples know about him at this point is a fraction. It's not even the tip of the iceberg of what they're going to see in the next three years. At this point, they know that he was a prophet and a very unique man. What had he done last week? the first week of his ministry, he simply turned 180 gallons of ordinary well water into the finest aged wine. They were amazed. They knew something was happening. This was a sign, and they saw it, that this was the promised Messiah, the one who would make the mountains drip with sweet wine and the hills to overflow with it. He was at that wedding party in a literal and figurative sense the life of, of the party. And he was the life of the party because he loved everyone at that party. That all happened in the first half of 
the chapter, uh, second chapter of John, the first week of Jesus' ministry. And as we come into the second half of the second chapter, we're going to see something that to me makes John chapter 2 one of the most interesting chapters in the gospel because we see a picture of Jesus that's mind-blowing between the first week of his ministry and the second week of the ministry. Is this a different Jesus that we're about to see? Do the disciples think they've been sold a bill of goods? It's a totally different Jesus that they're seeing now. Is the loving, compassionate, winemaking Jesus that they saw in Cana now different? Well, let's find out. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers that overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray now that your spirit, Lord, would open the, the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we would see greater pictures of Jesus. Lord, because when we see Jesus, we see you. So, Lord, do your will with us. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, everything that we just read happens in the second week of Jesus' ministry. After the wedding at Cana, they went down to Capernaum, and then after a few days there, they spent the day traveling to Jerusalem. And why Jerusalem? Because it was the Passover. This is something that Jews have been doing for centuries. Jesus was just like every other Jew, making the trek to Jerusalem along with hundreds of thousands of other Jews in accordance with what God had commanded them since the Exodus. When, when the, lamp, the, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and God ushered them out of slavery into towards the promised land. And after this, God prescribed very specific methods of worship that they might remember and glorify his name for his great kindness to them, for delivering them from bondage. But over the centuries, God's intention had changed. God's, God's intention was never satisfied. It had, the people's worship had morphed. At the very best, it was nothing more than just going through the motions. At the very worst, 
It had become a blaspheming experience. They were using the Passover to enrich themselves. They had lost sight of the great mercy and love and grace of God who had rescued them. And the temple that they came to worship at, it really was an amazing structure. Now, this was actually the second temple. If you know your Old Testament history, the first temple was, was built around 1,000 years earlier by Solomon. It was destroyed about 600 years before this time that we're at now with Jesus. So this was really the second temple and was in the 46th year of a major reconstruction project. And at the center of this temple was what we know as the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place where the presence of God existed and where the priest would go in just once a year. One priest once a year would go into this, this holiest of holies. And then around this centerpiece of the Holy of Holies were numerous courts, courts for priests, courts for men, courts for women to worship God. And then at the very outside of all those inner courts was about a four foot or so high wall why was that wall there? That wall was to keep out all the non-Jews, the Gentiles. There were even signs on that wall that said, if you're not a Jew and you cross over this, you can be killed. This area outside that four-foot wall was referred to as another court, though. It was the court of the Gentiles. This wall separated those who the Jews believed were not God's people. And this area, this court of the Gentiles, was a crazy place. If you can imagine, at Passover, if you've ever been to the Reading Terminal Market before the pandemic on a Saturday morning or a weekday lunch, it is a hopping place. People are all over the place. You cannot squeeze by and get your cheesesteak. It's, it's an exciting place, but really, really hectic. That's what the court of the Gentiles was like at the time of the Passover. Hundreds of thousands of worshipers, hundreds of thousands of animals. There were salesmen trying to hawk animals for the temple sacrifice because there were people that traveled for weeks to get to Jerusalem. They couldn't bring their animals with them. They needed to get an animal to sacrifice. But these salesmen didn't do it for free. They were making some money. And the money changers that the Bible talks about, they were there to exchange foreign currency so that those people traveling from great distances could get Jewish coinage to pay the annual temple tax. They, too, were not doing it for free. They were taking something off of the top. So the money changers and the salesmen really did technically provide a service that enabled the Jews and Gentiles to worship as God prescribed, but their greed over the centuries had consumed them. And this, this is the scene. This chaotic scene is what Jesus walks into to worship a holy God. And as we move through this text, I want to propose this morning that this whip-cracking, table-turning Jesus is the same one that we saw in the wedding at Cana. Settings are different, but Jesus doesn't change, you guys. His actions are different, but every one of them we're going to see is motivated by his love for all people. There's not a moment in history, 
There's not a moment you're experiencing right now. There's nothing that's going to happen for the rest of your life that is not orchestrated by the love of God for you. Everything Jesus does is from love. There's no exceptions. There's no days off. There's no little asterisks. There's not an iota, not a jot, not a tittle of what Jesus does that's absent of love. And in this passage, we're going to see, I think very clearly, three different expressions of the love of Christ. The first is his holy love. The second is his sacrificial love. And the final one is his unmerited love. Each is distinct from one another. Each is distinct from the love that we saw expressed at the wedding in Cana. But everyone shows, every one of them shows that everything Jesus does is out of love. So let's start with the holy love of Christ. When the disciples watched Jesus waving his whip of cords that he had made, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What was it written? Where was it written? Who wrote it? Well, it's a direct reference to David writing Psalm 69, verse 9. And as with many other prophetic passages, especially those by David, this one has a dual meaning. And the first one applies to David's consuming passion to build a temple that was worthy of the glory of the God that he loved with his whole heart. A man after God's heart was consumed to build this temple. But David died without having that zeal satisfied. The second meaning points to this moment right now that we just read with Jesus making his way through the temple with the whip. And we see in this, as with so many other cases in the scriptures, that where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Jesus' zeal for God's glory will not be denied, neither in this life or the next. Now, most expressions of Jesus' love are ones that we are intended to and can actually image to some degree. Some better than others. We can all take a bottle of wine to our friend's party, right? It's an expression of love. However, the holy love we see in this temple clearing, I don't know how familiar I am with that, you guys. I believe it's not impossible and we're called to do it, but I believe it's very, very hard for us to image in a real accurate way the holy love of God. But why am I calling this holy love? I thought he's got a whip in his hands. How can, how can God, Jesus, be loving when he's angry? Because when we're angry, we're not loving. When we're loving, we're not angry. They're mutually exclusive for us. It's like a light switch. But for Jesus, that's not the case. Jesus never stops loving us when he displays his anger because it's holy anger. His anger, what does it flow out of? It whole, flows out of love. He's never one or the other. Well, what makes it holy then, Dave? Well, everything Jesus does is holy. We just sang about it. He can't do anything without being holy. Every attribute that Jesus has is characterized being holy, separate, different from everything that we are familiar with. For Jesus, both anger and love are holy, and the anger is very easy to see. Whips are cracking, tables are turning, money is rolling all over the place. And I don't know if Jesus ever actually hit anybody 
with that whip, but I can guarantee you those money changers and those traders and even the animals thought they were going to get hit. That's the kind of anger he had. And when he spoke in verse 16, I don't think it was like this. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. <laughs> That's not what Jesus did. Don't, don't think that this is a, the soft little Jesus. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus' anger was on full display, but it was motivated out of a holy love for his people because everything Jesus does is out of love. But who is it that Jesus loved? Well, first and foremost, it was the Father. A Father who himself is holy and high above all us. The one who created all things. The one who delivered them from Egypt. The one who was faithful even when they were faithless. Jesus was passionate that this Father received worship that was reverent and honoring. That's the whole reason Jesus came to Jerusalem, to worship God. But what he experienced was the polar opposite of that. He experienced chaos and irreverence. Mere feet from the Holy of Holies was, was commerce going on designed to line the pockets of the money traders and enrich the priests. The poor Jews were made poorer by what was supposed to be a God-honoring time. God wasn't worshipped. God was monetized. So we see Jesus' anger here being rooted in love for the Father. But this, this is also true, you guys. This is what I love about studying Scripture, about being with other people and studying Scripture. We see new contours of it as we dive into it. Jesus' love was also rooted in love for the outcasts. This most outer court, beyond that four-foot-high retaining wall, where the money changers and the traders and the animals were, that's the only place the non-Jews could be. It's the only place the Gentiles could exist. You see, some of these non-Jews were there to worship God as well. And Jesus loved these non-fearing, these God-fearing um, Gentiles. And he was jealous that just like the Jews, they'd be able to worship God as well, in spirit and in truth. But the commerce and the chaos of the court of the Gentiles made this impossible. And so what did Jesus do out of his love for these uh, Gentiles? He got angry. The Jews were oblivious to this. They were just going about their business. But Jesus knew and loved these people because Jesus loves everyone, Jews and Gentiles, Black and white, free and slave, men and women, rich and poor. Jesus loves everyone, and it's this love that causes him to pick up the whip. So what does this holy love of Jesus show us, even though we can't image it perfectly? It does show us that we should be passionate people. Godly people should be passionate people. Do we in any small way touch up against this holy, passionate anger when we see God being dishonored or worshiped in an unworthy way? Are we a church that rises up when we see obstacles placed in the way of others worshiping God? Make it more personal. Do our lifestyles, the choices we make, draw people to God and show God to them, or do we push them 
away. What about Sunday mornings? How do we approach Sunday mornings? Is it with an experience, an expectation to meet God with reverence and all? I hope so. And do we relate to the Word of God as living and active? Jesus isn't necessarily looking for raised hearts, you guys, or raised hands, but he's looking for raised hearts. And the way we enter into and engage in worship on Sunday mornings and the rest of our lives, because all of life is worship, the way we engage that reveals our true feelings and our affections for Jesus. That's the first expression of Jesus' love. It is holy and far above us, but we are called to image it to the best of our abilities. Secondly, his sacrificial love. And we see this in verse 19 when Jesus is responding to the Jews, saying, why are you doing all this? What gives you the right to turn these tables over? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews were clearly clueless about this, though, weren't they? They thought he was talking about the outer courts and the inner courts and the Holy of Holies. They didn't see it. But guess what? The disciples were no quicker on the uptake either, were they? They didn't pick up on it. It took them another three years to realize that he was speaking about his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to confuse people. He wasn't trying to be obtuse. He did this at the wedding a week earlier. He said, it's not yet my time. But with this analogy that we can see now between the destruction of the temple and his crucifixion, Jesus was simply presenting another sign, a sign that pointed to him, Jesus, eventually doing away with the old covenant and bringing a new covenant into play. No longer would Jew and Gentile have to travel to Jerusalem and sacrifice animals and, and, and have them bleed out. They would go to Jesus himself. Remember back in John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus tabernacled with us. Jesus became the new temple, the dwelling place of God. To go to God, we go to Jesus. And no longer would hundreds of thousands of animals have to be sacrificed year after year after year. Jesus would become, as John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the once and for all fully satisfying atoning sacrifice. When he offered himself on the cross, it was finished. The temple curtain was torn in two, and we all have access to Jesus. We don't have to go through priests or, or, or sacrifice animals. We have direct access to God through Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for just a short period of time, I'm guessing that that sacrificial love of Jesus is really fresh to you. It's really amazing. You wake up every morning remembering Jesus' great love for you. But for any of us who have been a Christian for, sadly, maybe more than a few months, yeah, Jesus died for me. And, and this is what else the Bible says. This is what else I have to do. But guys, this is the very heart, the nucleus of the gospel, this sacrificial love. Let's never take for granted the amazing grace of God through the love of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, For I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, 
Let's be vigilant to not allow what's of first importance to become secondary, mundane, or, oh yeah, what else? Without the cross, we have nothing to boast in. Christ was consumed with zeal for the love of God to the point of being himself physically consumed by the cross. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we regularly consumed with so great a love that Christ has shown us? Now, before moving on to the final expression of Jesus' love, it would be amiss to not mention one more observation from this text. And that's the critical importance of Scripture in our lives as believers. The disciples didn't rely on their own experience to figure out what is happening in front of me. What am I seeing? What is Jesus saying? They didn't try to figure it out themselves. They used the Scripture as the lens to, to, to understand all that was happening in front of them. It was only when they remembered David's words from Psalm 69 that they understood what was happening to the temple. And it was when they remembered Jesus' words, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. Three years later is when they remembered that from the word that their eyes were opened and they saw that it was about his crucifixion and resurrection. We simply, in this time or any time in our lives, we cannot make sense of what's happening in the world or our own lives without the word of God to interpret it. We must be constrained by it we must be encouraged by it. We must correct ourselves and one another by it. We must led, be led by it in all of life. Remember Paul when he was in jail? Awaiting execution. He wanted only three things. What do you want when you're in trial? Probably want a lot more than that. He wanted three things. He wanted his cloak, a little cold in jail. He wanted the books. But he said, but most importantly, bring me the parchments. That's what was close to his heart, the parchments. They were his scriptures. Let's be like Paul. Lastly, unmerited love. That's the third expression that we see in this passage. Jesus himself knew what was in man. Now, the direct meaning of this is that Jesus knows what's in our heart of hearts. Our conscience tells us that. Now, it's true that many believed, it says right here, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. But apparently, this was insufficient for Jesus to entrust himself to these people. Now, I don't know about you, but I, when I read that, that's a little troubling to me. <laughs> they believed, but you know, Jesus says no. He's keeping them at arm's length. What's that all about? Believe, and Jesus says, no, I don't trust you. Well, back in John 1, verse 12, it says, this is why it's confusing to us. It says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those, that was a saving faith. It's very clear that, that there's a belief that pleases Jesus and saves. But it's also equally clear that this speaking of belief must be a different kind of belief. It must be shallower. Someday it may lead to saving faith, but right now it's insufficient. They know something about Jesus, but presently they're more enamored by his miracles than they are captivated by his love. 
They're not yet open to see what the signs point to, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, when Jesus looks at the heart of anyone, this is a little bit hard at this point. When Jesus looks at the heart of anyone who hasn't fully trusted in his name, what is it that he sees? Why was he keeping them at arm's length? Well, the Bible, if we believe it, is pretty clear. For anyone who hasn't trusted in the name of Jesus, this is what the kind of heart Jesus sees. It's evil. It's covetous. It's murderous. It's envious. It's adulterous. It's deceitful. It's not just indifferent to God. It actually hates God. That's all in Romans 1. The Bible's clear that without the blood of Jesus to cover over our darkened hearts, that's what Jesus sees when he looks at men and women. But, the band can come up now, Tom, but there's another side to Jesus' omniscience. And for those who believe in his name, the heart that Jesus sees is just the opposite of that described in Romans 1. How amazing is that? And what is it that makes that difference? It's simply the grace of God. It's nothing we do. It's the grace of God that enters people who humble themselves. It's an interesting paradox. That if we confess that's who we are, if we agree with what the Bible says we are in Romans 1's outside of Christ, it's then that we're ushered into eternal life. We're not able to be good enough on our own. Jesus must change us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. And then, when Jesus looks at our hearts, they're white as snow. Heart of stone used to be there. It's now a heart of flesh. We're literally new people with changed hearts and changed desires a desire to love and worship God, a desire to love others sacrificially, and a desire to point others to the hope that's found only in Jesus' unmerited love. We bring nothing to the table. It's because he loves us that he does this. Here's a very, 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 very weak analogy of unmerited love. And since I'm probably one of the few baseball fans here, This is a weak baseball analogy. You only get to first base by striking out and then asking Jesus to get there. You don't, unless you confess and admit that you struck out on your own, you never get to first base. Finally, in that anniversary card that I wrote to Andrea, I write her one every year. I shared a number of reasons why I love her. And one was this. I think you're out there, Andrea, watching. We'll see. I love that I am not the one you love the most. It's because Andrea loves Jesus best that I'm able to experience increasing expressions of her love to me. And when I see her love for me, what's the, what's the natural response? I'm stirred to love her more. And the same should be true of our relationship with Jesus. If you found your heart cold to Jesus and his word, maybe you've forgotten his love for you. We're only able to love Jesus when we remember that he loved us first. Look for his love in the scriptures and you'll love him more. 
dwell on the truth that God loved you so much that he gave his only son and you will love him more. Remember that all your sins have been forgiven by his death on the cross and you will love him more. May we never become too familiar with so great a love. And my hope and prayer for all of us today and for the rest of our lives is that we may have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Amen.